Impeachment 2 is here, and we get into the trial and see where that's going to go, and we see all kinds of emotional and much, much, much sought-after theatrical performances off that. And we'll talk just a bit about that. It was, a, it was kind of a wild ride, I'm not going to lie. But I also promise the stuff they're trying to cram in while everyone's paying attention to the impeachment. The price tag dropped to keep the National Guard in D.C., and it's quite the shocker as we look into what's going on there. Senator Manchin is urging Biden to reverse his opposition to the Keystone XL pipeline. And in other news, a new app allows you to block 800 New York Times journalists to fight disinformation. It's going to be all that and more. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Contemporary. My name is Jay Edgar. We have got a bunch of stuff to get to today. It's going to be a wild ride, absolutely, today. Uh, just all the stuff surrounding the impeachment and everybody talking about that. Plus, as I promised, all the stuff they're trying to cram in in the background. You don't want to miss it here, whether it be live here or on the audio platforms. But before we get into any of this, head on over to freedomscoop.com. Freedomscoop.com is going to be your one-stop shop for all of your news and commentary needs, where we carry great shows such as The Generational Gap, The Daily Ignoramus, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, The R-Rated Conservative, and The Freckles and Brit Show. Hang on, i got to go and check on something here. Just do a little behind the scenes. Alright, just wanted to make sure. Alright, I thought maybe we were still going to Elaine's channel, but apparently we are not, which is good. So, anyway, head on over there, pick up some of our swag, bookmark our page so you can pick up some of our swag and help us support great creators. We're getting some bios in, we're getting ready to get this thing launched and ready to go. I'm fairly excited to see what the new website looks like once we get it going and once we actually have some uh, IT support in there, ready to go, ready to help out if something does go down. So bookmark the page and go and check out all the channels that we host and carry and look forward for us coming up in the near future. All right, looking at the Dow to start with, it looks like it took a fairly significant drop yesterday, climbed back up and hit itself back up to, uh, to some good numbers again, but dropped again at the end. We ended 9.93 points down, or barely just a scratch below yesterday's close. So a couple things that are driving that, and we'll talk just a bit about that. Market Watch warning everybody about a market correction coming up here. So we will definitely look into that. As far as the Bitcoin goes, we are at 45,718 US dollars per Bitcoin. So a very, very small slide yesterday, as far as your Bitcoin went, but you know, we're starting to see. We have no idea where the currency is going to go, what's going to happen with that. And the market forces are also trying to convince you that it's a bad idea and it's going to be illegal and you're going to be considered a criminal if you have Bitcoin or just that you're going to be left holding the bag when that crashes too. So a couple things to look at with that as well. So we'll watch what's going on with that. And we will move into IBD for the morning. Dow Jones futures rise despite market rally. <clears throat> Warning signs, six key stock movers from Ed Carson. Dow Jones futures rose modestly Wednesday morning, along with S&P 500 futures and NASDAQ futures, buoyed by China markets. The stock market rally had a quiet Tuesday, though the major indices nudged into record highs intraday. The NASDAQ still looks extended among most notable cautions. 
Liftstock, Enphase Energy, Match Group, and Dow Giant Cisco Systems were notable movers after hours. On Tuesday, Tesla rival Neostock and recent IPO C3AI raced through the buy zones. Bitcoin held big recent gains on Tesla's buy, while GameStop broke below another notable level. Twitter, Enphase Energy, Rapid7, Lyft, and Cisco Systems reported earnings late Tuesday. GM released fourth quarter results early on Wednesday. Twitter earnings beat views along with Enphase stock, Rapid7, Lyft, GM, and Cisco Systems. Twitter stock jumped 9% overnight and Lyft soared 11% after both focused uh, closed rather somewhat extended from buy points. Enphase stock popped 7%, moving toward a buy point in a new base after a recent rebound from its 10-week line. RPD stock edged higher as it trades as a flat base. Cisco stock fell 4% on weak guidance after hitting a 52-week high on Monday. GM fell 1% before the open as the automaker said the industry's chip shortage could cut its profit by $2 billion in 2021. Shares dipped Tuesday from Monday's all-time highs. Meanwhile, Online dating giant Match Group late Tuesday said it will pay $1.725 billion for HyperConnect, a South Korean social media company that has video and audio chat apps. Match stock rose 4.5% in the pre-market, signaling a move past the consolidation area starting on December 17th. Also, the ByteDance sales of the U.S. operations of TikTok to Oracle and Walmart reportedly have been shelved. Oracle edged higher while Walmart stock was little changed in pre-market action. The Bitcoin price jumped 48200 early Tuesday, but was trading below 46000 Wednesday morning, little changed versus 24 hours earlier. Bitcoin spiked Monday on Tesla's announcement that it bought $1.5 billion worth of the crypto. Tesla stocked 1.6% on Tuesday, erasing Monday's slim gain. Tesla's China rival NEO jumped 6.4% to 6284, a record close, and decisively clearing a downward sloping trend line in a new consolidation just above a prior base by Tuesday's close. NEO stock was slightly extended from that early entry, but could have a new buy point at 6709. On Monday, NEO stock reclaimed a prior buy point and peaked out past the trend line. Recent IPO AI stock soared 12%. To 168.92, surging past a 160.53 buy point from an IPO base. AI is slightly beyond the 5% chase zone, which extends to 168.56. Finally, GameStop set a grim new milestone. On January 27th, GameStop closed 1,054% above its 50 day line, according to the Market Smith uh, analysis. GME stock is now below its 50-day line. Shares fell 16% on Tuesday to 50.31. That's 90% below the GME stock peak of 483 on January 28th. So, that's what's happening on the markets. Just a brief one here with Yellen, because we're not going to see this with all the impeachment stuff going on. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Janet Yellen met with major CEOs and business leaders. They included J.P. Morgan, CEO Jamie Dimon, Walmart CEO Doug McMillan, who's also chairman of Business Roundtable, the business leaders expressed support for a sizable new stimulus package because they're going to be the ones that make bank off it when people go and pay bills and, you know, use it to go buy stuff to feed themselves. They're going straight to the Walmart because it's fucking cheap. 
but signaled concerns about a minimum wage, especially at the current time. <laughs> okay. Walmart's probably beaten off thinking about the fact that they can exploit more workers under a new minimum wage when everybody else has to go work for Walmart because they can't work for the small mom and pop place down the road because they can afford the $15 an hour minimum wage. Pig Millen's probably beating his meat over that one. Biden is pushing for a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, though he signaled he can accept tighter restrictions on direct checks of $1,400. The president also has hinted that a $15 minimum wage may not be part of the stimulus package if it comes via a budget reconciliation bill. Well, I thought that I was already done, settled, and ready to go. So, this may be something from an earlier time. Everything else seems to be current. But let's look at the futures. Dow futures rose 0.3% versus fair value. S&P 500 futures were up 0.3%. NASDAQ 100 futures climbed 0.3%. Cisco stock is a Dow Jones, S&P 500, and NASDAQ 100 component. Futures turned higher Tuesday after the Shanghai exchange opened. The Shanghai composite jumped 1.4%, with Hong Kong's Hang Seng index up 1.9%. Remember... Overnight action in Dow Futures and elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. So, a few movers here. Looks like the futures uh, wound up starting up, so we'll see what happens with that. And we will move on and see, because MarketWatch is a little bit more wary of what's happening here. So let's see what they have to say. Is the stock market due for a correction in 2021? Here's what some experts think. From Mark DeCamber. A pullback for the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 Index on Tuesday halted the longest win streak for stocks in months. But a major concern for investors remains. Is there a major correction looming ahead? Even some bullish investors have called for a retrenchment in stocks as sort of a catharsis for the next leg higher and an unwind of some of the frenzied retail-inspired betting that has recently sent stocks to a fresh record amid the COVID-19 recovery. A brief pullback that began late to, uh, January tied to the trading fervor around GameStop Corporation and AMC Entertainment Holdings saw markets test some short-term bullish trend lines, but recently the markets have managed to claw back to produce not unspectacular returns in the early goings of the year chock full of uncertainties. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 2.5%. So far in the year, the S&P 500 is enjoying a more pronounced gain of over 4%, while the NASDAQ Composite and Russell 2000 Indices on Tuesday notched their 10th record closes in 2021 thus far. The year-to-date gains in the large-cap NASDAQ up 8.7% and the Russell 2000 up 16.4% reflect an odd convergence of investor bets. Those wagering on further prosperity in COVID-tested large capitalization growth stocks that worked in the aftermath of the pandemic in the U.S. back in March alongside bets for a sizable rebound in small-cap Economically sensitive stocks represented in the Russell. In either case, cautious investors and those worried about that the good time can't last forever are bracing for the next major slump for stocks and ruminating on how it might play out. Earlier this week, Morgan Stanley's Michael Wilson told CNBC during an interview that it was brief, so if you blink, you missed it, referring to the pullback in stocks in late January. <clears throat> well, that also had something to do with GameStop. Keep that in mind. That looks like it was for now, and I mean, the markets are quite powerful at the moment, and they have been, Wilson said. 
there's tremendous liquidity. There's a very good and very understandable story behind the scenes, meaning we've got a strong economic recovery that's visible to everybody. The earnings season's been good so far, and people have bought into it. Morgan Stanley analyst said, he cautioned, however, that the market remains a bit of a fragile state and warned that leveraging swirling in the system could make pullbacks of 3% to 5% more of the norm. And he's absolutely right to think that, too. I mean, we've sat down and we saw one of the greatest economies out there, and it was building up on a little bit of a bubble, but it was a maintainable bubble. Given the fact that the rhetoric coming out of the White House constantly was less taxes, fewer taxes, Cut the taxes, slash the regulations, and that's what it was for three years. So, it was believable that you could come back and see that, yes, this is going to turn out and be something that's sustainable for a little while. Now we're coming off on the fact that for th uh, the last year, people have not been able to go to work. Various states have kept their economy shut down, and various small businesses have not been able to keep up. There are small businesses that are shutting down right now. Adding to the fact as well that we're seeing tax hikes coming back up. The money's becoming less because there's $1.9 trillion of uh, fresh printed money. What is it? Tim Pool keeps saying like 60% of the money supply has been printed in the last year. 60% of all the money in history, in the history of the Federal Reserve, has been printed in the last year. So your money's becoming worth less. I'm starting to see it. Like we talked about the, the McDonald's sandwich that uh, just increased in price for the first time since I was in high school was the last time the McChicken has changed price. And I'm 36 years old. So we're seeing that. We're seeing your money become worth less and less and less. Taxes are going to get hiked, especially on small businesses coming to start off. So this bubble is going to pop, and both the Treasury Secretary and the White House themselves are not helping. Neither one of them are helping. Now, we are seeing some, some growth and some movement coming out of big city areas, and that's going to help with your home prices, especially in smaller town areas, because people feel, uh, figured out that they can work remotely. That is going to be a thing. But gas prices are going to go up. Your goods are going to get more expensive because the Keystone XL pipeline is shut down. Um, transport costs are going to go up because you need to pull trucks off of other supplies in order to get them to transport fuel for other trucks to go across the country hauling your stuff. So we're going to see a few things that are going to be quite damaging to what's going on in this bubble. And I think maybe 8 to 10 is what we might see on the pullback, not three to five. Three to five, I think, is the best case scenario at this point. Just looking at some of the ideas that are coming through. And we'll talk a bit about the pipeline, too, because Manchin decided that he needed to come up and talk about that as well. So let's get off the markets here, and let's talk about this impeachment, because that's what everybody else talked about yesterday. So today we are going to start with NPR, where they talk like this. And they are going to be the best one to talk about this because, well, first off, I love making fun of NPR. Don't get me wrong. But they like to see something like this here. So the Senate declares that Trump's impeachment trial is constitutional. From Barbara Sprunt, make sure that once you get that stimulus, you give that nice big donation of all $1,400 back to NPR because they need your money. Because it can't be cheap to keep microphones and sound techs to make this kind of thing sound good. 
I'm lying, of course, because I'm running this right through a 3.5mm jack into a laptop without a soundboard. So that's how they do this here. Let's see what they have to say. The second impeachment trial of Donald Trump will move forward after the Senate voted Tuesday that the trial of a former president is constitutional. The tr uh, Trump was impeached by the House last month on a charge of inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The Senate vote on Tuesday was 56 to 44, with six Republicans joining all 50 members of the Democratic caucus. The Republicans who voted for the trial's constitutionality were Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, I mean, we knew Collins was going to do it, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney, surprise, surprise, Ben Sass of Nebraska, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. Apparently, the glowing review from Castor did not change Pat Toomey's mind. We'll talk a bit about that, too, because that, ugh, I still have shudders thinking about that speech. Cassidy's vote is notable because he's the only senator to switch sides from an early procedural vote on the trial's constitutionality. <clears throat> the Louisiana Republican told Capitol Hill reporters that he thought Trump's legal team did a terrible job on Tuesday. They did. The trial will begin its next phase on Wednesday at noon Eastern Time. Each side, House impeachment managers followed by Trump's defense team, will have up to 16 hours over two days to make its case for the conviction or acquittal. I'm surprised they're going to get this done in two days. I really am because, I mean, you can't sell more commercials off of this. And what did we see at the, the Clinton trial? Didn't that go for like two months? Of course, Donald himself does have the right to a speedy trial as a private citizen, so they can't sit back and stretch this out either. Here's a look at what happened on day one. House impeachment managers began by showing members of the Senate a graphic video that walked through the events that took place on January 6th, including Trump's comment to supporters ahead of the riot that we will stop the steal, referencing his baseless claims of election fraud. The video documents the cascading events of the day, including Trump supporters erecting a makeshift gallows and a noose, breaching the Capitol, chanting, no Trump, no peace, and using American flags to break the building's windows, and a police officer screaming in pain as he was attacked. The film was a Michael Bay production. Interspersed through the disturbing footage were videos and tweets from Trump that day, including his comment to supporters to go home. We love you. You're very special. After the video, the lead impeachment manager, Jamie Raskin, told senators that Trump's actions constitute high crimes and misdemeanors. If that's not an impeachable offense, there's no such thing, Raskin said. Ahead of the trial, Democrats previewed that their argument would be a visceral one, based largely off emotion and making people cry and family matters, and we'll talk all a bit about that. Based largely off public evidence, no, it's this is an emotional thing. You are doing all you're doing with this is trying to appeal to emotions of people, so that when you don't get your 67 votes, you can come off and say, "See how evil and how unpersonable these people are. Vote every one of them out." The video set the tone for that strategy, immediately taking lawmakers who experienced the attack back to the events of that day. House managers also addressed the scholarly interpretations of the Constitution, arguing that there is consensus among legal experts that a trial of a former president is in fact constitutional. I still have questions about that, I'm not going to lie.
Raskin, a former constitutional law professor, dismissed claims that you can try a president only while the president is in office. It's still largely symbolic because the purpose of impeachment is to remove a sitting president for office so you can try him as a private citizen. If he's not in office, why are we going through with this impeachment bullshit? Throw an indictment at him through a grand jury like you do with any other private citizen and try him as a private citizen. He is a private citizen now. But my guess is they don't have anything to pin on him for this. They actually don't. They actually know they can't do this in a regular court of law. So they have to pull out this charade and show that they can do this right in the Senate. Their argument is that if you commit an impeachable offense in your last few weeks in office, you do it with constitutional impunity, he said. You get away with it. He called this the January exception to impeachment. No. You're about to be a private citizen, and you can be tried as a fucking private citizen. They have courts for that. You fucking idiot. Sorry. Democrats ended their arguments for the day on an emotional appeal from Raskin. He tearfully recounted his family's experience during the attack, in which he was separated from his 24-year-old daughter and son-in-law. They thought they were going to die. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about that as well. Uh, the defense strategy, Trump's lawyers offered an at times rambling defense of the former president that was multi-pronged, that the trial itself is unconstitutional, that Trump's comments about the election are protected under the First Amendment, and that Trump was not responsible for inciting the mob that breached the Capitol. He wasn't. Bruce Castor, one of Trump's attorneys, delivered a meandering and long-winded opening argument saying that the effort to try Trump is partisan maneuver that could come back to haunt Democrats. It will. The Republicans might regain the House in two years, he said, alleging there would be pressure for the GOP to respond with further impeachments. Couldn't you see Bill Clinton being impeached again, or Jimmy Carter? Uh, yeah, they're still guinea worms, so Jimmy Carter is still going to be alive at that time. The political pendulum will shift one day, Castor said, and partisan impeachments will become commonplace. Well, I hate to say it, but the founders actually kind of intended for that to happen. They wanted everybody to be impeached because they wanted people to hold their leadership accountable. Another Trump attorney, David Shane, spoke at length about constitutional issues, trying to make the case the Senate does not have the jurisdiction to try a private citizen Trump. Right. There's a grand jury for that, and a district court for that. But once again, I feel like this whole sham is because they know they don't have jack shit. And he played his own video montage of Democrats over the years calling for Trump's impeachment and argued the trial will only further divide America. So that was the first day on this. Let's have a look at some of the breakdowns of some of the things, starting with CNN, which this story just disgusts me to all ends and all means. I am so disgusted by the fact that this come up. We knew that there was going to be something going down. We knew that there... Now, most of us looked into this. We saw the rally was coming. We had no idea that anybody was going to breach the Capitol. But I said a prayer for Stephen Ignoramus the day that he went down there because I knew that there was going to be something that happened. I knew that something was going to go down. 
We had thousands of MAGA patriots, and we talked about it on the Red Net Show. We had thousands of MAGA patriots coming straight away from Georgia after voting, straight away from Georgia, going up to attend a rally. And what happens when MAGA people show up in D.C.? Black Lives Matter and Antifa show up. If this guy brought his family just a day after they buried their kid into D.C., this is on him. I'm sorry. You knew that there was going to be unrest, that people were pissed, and that Antifa was going to be in there egging people on on top of it. Now, once again, we had no idea that the Capitol building was going to get breached. We had no idea that was going to happen, but we knew the streets were going to be shaky and shoddy. That's why the, that's why all the National Guard was in there. That's why the police were ramped up. We knew this was going to happen. The hotels were canceling their reservations. And you brought your family into this? Are you out of your mind? But let's see what Jamie Raskin had to say. Lead impeachment manager Jamie Raskin tearfully recalls Capitol Riot. This cannot be the future of America. That's seven minutes, so we're not going to watch that here. But uh, let's talk a bit about this. Lead House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin on Tuesday delivered a tearful account of his experience during last month's U.S. Capitol. <clears throat> it wasn't an insurrection. Jesus it was not an insurrection. It was a selfie festival. Delivered, uh, charging that the deadly episode cannot be the future of America. Addressing lawmakers during former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial, Raskin explained that his younger daughter, Tabitha, and son-in-law, Hank, the husband of Raskin's oldest daughter, had accompanied him to Capitol Hill to witness the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th. That was your first problem right there. That was your first problem. I talked about going down to D.C. When I started to see the writing on the wall, I said, nope, I'm not going to do this. Because there's a good chance I'm not going to be coming home if I do this. You took their lives into your own hand when you decided to bring them into this. Knowing full well that half of the country was pissed. Just a day earlier, Raskin's family had buried his 25-year-old son, Tommy. Raskin recalled that Tabitha and Hank had asked him if it would be safe, and he had told them, of course it should be safe, this is the capital. The Maryland Democrat then choked up as he talked about being separated from the pair as the pro-Trump mob reached the Capitol complex and spurred hours of chaos. I couldn't get out there to be with them in that office. And all around me, people were calling their wives and their husbands, their loved ones, to say goodbye. <laughs> okay, AOC. Members of Congress, in the House anyway, were removing their congressional pins so they wouldn't be identified by the mob as they tried to escape the violence, Raskin recounted. Our new chaplain got up and said a prayer for us, and we were told to put our gas masks on, he continued, and then there would be a sound I would never forget, the sound of pounding on the door, like a battering ram. Like the one that they did a couple of years ago during the Kavanaugh uh, hearings. The most haunting sound I ever heard. I will never forget it. <clears throat> yeah, imagine how Ruth felt. Raskin said that once they were reunited after the attack, he told Tapitha how sorry I was and promised her that it would be, it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. You know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. Raskin said, choking up and wiping his eyes before taking a moment to collect himself.
Slow clap. And the Oscar goes to Representative Raskin. Of all the terrible, brutal things that I saw and heard on that day since then, that one hit me the hardest. Raskin's emotional remarks came after he had opened his presentation with a video showing disturbing footage of how protesters had overrun police and ransacked the Capitol, forcing lawmakers in the House and Senate to flee their chambers. The video was spliced with Trump's speech on January 6th because, of course it was, ahead of the riots showing the crowd's reaction to Trump as he urged them to head to the Capitol. You know, I don't usually give airplay to Steven Crowder because he stole my morning show, and he, for the most part, is a little bitch. But I was listening, I'm probably still into the weekend, trying to catch up with podcasts from last week. And I listened to his Friday episode where he was talking about AOC and pointing out they actually had people run to see how long, how far it was and how long it would take them to get to the Capitol from where Trump was giving his speech. And even the fastest runners in the world could not have run from the speech from when Trump was done talking to the Capitol. So that throws a big wrench into the idea of that they, that he was the one that inspired the riot. Now, of course, yes, there were people out there that were ready to go and ready to see trouble. There were absolutely were people out there, but as far as them listening to him and then running straight to the Capitol, no, that would be impossible. Because what was it? It was like a minute, 22 seconds after he finished speaking that everything started happening at the Capitol. And he was like a mile away. So, do with that what you will. The Democrats' 13-minute video concluded with Trump's deleted tweet on January 6th saying that these are things and events that happen when a scared, uh, sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away. Raskin has tried his best to keep focused on the task in front of him since his son's death. Lawmakers and aides who have worked closely with Raskin say Tommy's memory has provided a kind of fuel for the congressman to keep going through hours-long prep sessions, votes, and floor debates. So he should be spending time with his family. And instead, he's coming in and running a partisan impeachment. After Tommy's death, Raskin and his wife, Sarah Bloom Raskin, wrote a moving tribute to Tommy and the people he had inspired. Tommy was an anti-war activist, a badass, autodidact, uh, moral philosopher, and a progressive humanist libertarian. He was not a progressive libertarian. And a passionate vegan, they said. In his 20s, Tommy suffered from a blindingly painful and merciless disease called depression. Raskin and his wife wrote, He left us this farewell note on New Year's Eve day. Please forgive me, my illness won today. Please look after each other, the animals and the global poor for me. All my love, Tommy. There you go. This is the emotion that you have to remember coming into this. This is... This is... The emotion you have to remember when you look at the senators that vote to acquit is that Jamie Raskin lost his son to uh, suicide. Remember that. All right, let's keep going here. I got another one here from NPR. Attorney Bruce Castor opens defense of former President Trump. This is from Alana Wise. 
Remember, give them, give, you the, give them that stimulus check. They're printing money. So give it back to NBR. Bruce Castor, an attorney representing former President Trump in his second impeachment trial, opened Trump's defense with a long-winded, non-linear opening argument, claiming that the effort to try Trump was nothing more than an emotionally driven partisan response to the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Fact check true. The political pendulum will shift one day, he said, and partisan impeachments will become commonplace. Castor, who's a former Montgomery County, Pennsylvania district attorney, spent much of the early part of his defense swaying between personal anecdotes and showering praise on the Senate as a body of extraordinary and gallant people. Boy, I sure hope that my mom's not watching this with my nephew and niece right now because I'm about to say something that I'm sure my sister doesn't want the, them to hear. And that is simple. That is the fact that uh, if, uh, if Bruce Castor got the Senate's collective dick any further down his throat in that speech, and I listened to about half of it, it would be coming back out of his ass. In response to the article of impeachment accusing Trump of inciting a riot that left five people dead, Castor accused Democrats of being overly reactionary to the day's events. No, they're not being overly reactionary. The problem is, is they were... They were going to impeach on something. They had to throw one more impeachment at him. They've been talking about it since the first impeachment. They had to throw one more impeachment at him before he got out of office. They were going to do it on the phone call. They were going to do it on the riot. They were going to do it on some speech. They were going to do it on the fact that he was on Twitter saying the election was stolen. Except everything was above board completely, Susan. Wink, wink, honk, honk. They were going to do it. They just didn't know what the charge was going to be yet. The Republicans might regain the House in two years, he said, adding that the pressure to respond in kind with further impeachment would be enormous. Castor's opening argument followed the Democrats' argument for why the impeachment proceedings of a former president were within the bounds of the Constitution, including an impassioned speech led by House Manager Jamie Raskin, who recalled his experience on the Capitol that day. Uh. So, that's what we will see coming back out of this, and we will move into day two of this circus. From CNN. Trump unhappy with his impeachment attorney's performance, sources say from Caitlin Collins, Jim Acosta, you know, look at me, I'm Jim Acosta, look over here, look at me. I wonder what that guy's doing now that he doesn't get to sit in the press room and, I'm going to own the president and the press secretary. Look at me. I'm Jim Acosta. Also from Paul LeBlanc and Pamela Brown. Former President Donald Trump was unhappy with his impeachment lawyer, Bruce Castor's opening argument on the Senate floor Tuesday. Two people familiar with his reaction told CNN, Oh, you don't say... Castor, who is representing Trump alongside attorney David Shane delivered a meandering argument during the first day of his Senate impeachment trial, including praise for the House impeachment managers, for a presentation that he said was, Well done. <laughs> Trump was almost screaming as Castor struggled to get at the heart of his defense team's argument, which is supposed to be over the constitutionality of holding a trial for a president no longer in office. Given that the legal team was assembled a little over a week ago, it went as expected, one of the sources told CNN. Unnamed source, of course, because, you know, why would CNN ever put anybody on the record? 
Still, Trump's allies were flabbergasted when the attorneys switched speaking slots at the last minute. Castor's discursive presentation featured a lengthy praise of the Senate, including his home state Pennsylvania senators, Pat Toomey and Bob Casey. While arguing that the Senate should not be holding the trial, he warned that a second impeachment trial in 13 months would open the floodgates to future impeachments, even making the unfounded rhetorical suggestion that former Obama administration Attorney General Eric Holder could be impeached. Well, he could be, but I would still argue for him to be tried as a private citizen. Which he should be, by the way. The Senate ultimately voted 56 to 44 that the impeachment trial is constitutional. Don't know where they got that from either. An advisor to the Trump team offered a candid assessment of the messy opening day, asking pointedly, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I said about the same thing. About 10 minutes into Castro's speech. The advisor then said the former president could be in serious jeopardy if he finds himself charged in criminal court, given his inability to attract high-power legal team for the impeachment trial. Trump is fucked if everyone, uh, anyone ever tries uh, charges him. No one wants to work with him, the advisor said. Well, yeah, he kind of is his own worst enemy, too, and he, he says things. He says a lot of things. As Ben Shapiro says... You know, gang, his tombstone's going to say two things. 45th president of the United States said a bunch of shit. Shane was supposed to present first, not Castor. Two people familiar with the plan told CNN. But Castor told the Senate that Trump's legal team changed what we were going to do on account that we thought the house manager's presentation was well done. Uh... After Castor yielded to Shane, the tone of the defense team changed starkly. Shane charged that Democrats were using impeachment as a political blood sport to try and keep Trump from running for office again. I can't imagine why. That has got to be the most self-hatred you could put yourself through. Go through with the term that Trump had and then want to go and do it again. Especially... When he owns a private golf course that he never has to leave and has a supermodel wife. And is 74 years old. I wouldn't go through that again. I'm sorry. I love this country, but not that much. I would not go through that a second time. Accusing them of trying to disenfranchise pro-Trump voters. Yeah, they're, they're a religion. Though the former president was displeased by his defense team's early performance, his staff remained confident that he was headed for acquittal and would not change the outcome of the trial. Yeah, he probably still is. That's the worst part of it. That's the worst part of all this theatrics is he probably is still heading for an acquittal. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's... I. If I was him, I'd be pissed too. I absolutely would. Let's keep going. We got to keep going through this. Ah, this is an opinion piece from The Hill. From Elizabeth Holtzman, an opinion contributor, Senate Republicans could unite the nation by convicting Donald Trump. Unite the nation by disenfranchising half the country, 75 million people, and just doing what we say. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. With Donald Trump's impeachment trial about to start, it appears unlikely that many Senate Republicans will vote to convict him. 45 out of 50 of them recently voted to support the erroneous claim that the Senate cannot try a former president. 
They heard only from one professor who argued at a GOP Senate luncheon against trying a president who was already out of office, but who previously took the opposite position. Senate Republicans did not hear from the other side, but most scholars who have studied the question believe that the Senate can legally try Trump. After all, the Senate previously tried a former official. Trump was still in office when the House impeached him for the second time, and the Constitution gives Senate the power to try all impeachments with no time limits uh, specified. The history of the impeachment clause, which is based on both British and American colonial practice, supports that conclusion. While the Constitution was being written, Parliament was conducting an impeachment trial of a former governor general of India. Thomas Jefferson was impeached and then acquitted for his actions as Virginia's governor after he left that office. Since a two-thirds vote is required to convict, and Democrats make up only half the Senate, it is Senate Republicans who will decide the trial's outcome. Although many of them may want to avoid voting to convict Trump, they cannot escape their responsibility. Their votes stand between the rule of law and the diminishment of our democracy. And once again, as I said at the top of the show, there is a reason they're going this route and not putting him up in front of a grand jury and doing this as a private citizen, because I don't think they can get anything to stick. So all this is that now is a political floor show to once again keep Trump in the news. But there we are. The way you unite the country is by doing what we say. So, we will see what happens with that. And what happens, well, I'm sure a lot of us will be watching this as we move along. From NBC4 out of Washington, D.C. Congressman wants to ensure impeachment trial security fence is temporary. From Shomari Stone. <clears throat> Fences topped with sharp razor wire surrounded the Capitol during former President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. It's a safety measure that followed the Capitol riot on January 6th, and the local representative wants to make sure it's a temporary one. Residents, too, say they were disappointed at the distance between them and the symbol of American democracy. Have you seen the military compound outside the White House right now? It's really sad. I miss being up there, Reagan Gray, D.C. resident, said. There is like a sense of tranquility to be up near the people's house, you know, in the evenings, and you think, you can't do that right now. The acting U.S. Capitol Police Chief has called for permanent fencing, but Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton said she would introduce a bill in a few days to make it temporary. My bill, banning permanent fencing, will help put the needed focus back on security options that don't wall off the Capitol like a fortress that needs to be protected from the people we represent, Norton said in a written statement. I am curious to see where this goes and what happens with this. If they take the, if, first off, if walls really do work, I've, I've got to question that because, you know, these are the people who said for years that walls don't work and why are we trying to build a wall, build a wall, and now there's a wall around the Capitol complex. So there's that, and whether or not this all comes back down at the end or whether it stays up forever. So we'll see what happens with that. Speaking of the security around Capitol. From Fox Business, price tag surges to keep National Guard in DC now estimated at 483 million taxpayer dollars. From Sam Dorman, the government is estimated to rack up $483 million in costs for keeping the National Guard in Washington, D.C. Through March 15th, the Pentagon said on Monday. That figure included $284 million in personnel costs and $199 million for operations, which entails lodging, meals, transportation, sustainment, and airlift costs. 
An updated estimate came after a senior defense official told Fox News that it would cost about $438 million to keep troops there from January 6th, when the nation saw violent riots at the Capitol until mid-March. Between 5,000 and 7,000 troops are staying in D.C. until mid-March, a significant reduction from the 26,000 that were deployed to help secure the inauguration. Yeah, that was a tremendous waste of fucking money, too. <clears throat> According to the Pentagon, spokesman John Kirby costs... For the Army National Guard consists of $256 million for personnel, $165 million for operations. Meanwhile, personnel costs for the Air National Guard are expected to reach $28 million for personnel and $34 million for operations. Acting Army Secretary John E. Whitley said at the end of last month that the Guard had received requests for follow-on assistance from the U.S. Secret Service and other law enforcement entities in D.C., National Guard members will be postured to meet the requirements of the supported civil authorities, up to and including protective equipment and arming if necessary, Whitley said at the time. Yes, this is a free and fair republic that requires an army to go back and protect its capital. Don't you feel free and fair? Don't you feel that you can go back and redress your grievances with the National Guard pointing a rifle back at you? and fencing around the place where you would redress your grievances. Don't you feel free? Don't you feel like the government represents you? Let's keep going. Tom Elliott, shifting gears here, talking about the Biden administration. Tom Elliott tweets out, White House, our goal is to have 50% of schools open by April 30th, 2021, at least one day per week. Goal of opening up schools swiftly and safely. Mm -hmm. Could you help us understand what the White House is or what the president's definition of open schools is? Does it mean yeah. teachers in classroom teaching students in classroom? Or does it just mean kids in classroom with a remote screen? Help us understand. Sure. His goal that he set is to have the majority of schools, so more than 50%, open. Uh, by day 100 uh, of his presidency, and that means uh, some teaching in classrooms. So at least one day a week, hopefully it's more. And obviously it is as much as is safe in each school and local district. When you say some teaching, that's, you didn't use the same majority qualifier there. You just have to have some teaching in school, some teachers in school, not the majority of teachers in school and the majority of classrooms. Well, teaching at least one day a week um, in the majority of schools by day 100. And that's in-person teaching? In-person teaching, yes. Thank you. There's the workaround and the government giving you the reach-around for your tax dollars as well. Your school is considered open if they have in-person instruction one day per week. Well, that sure got a lot easier to try and accomplish. they got to lower the bar for Biden. Now, if Trump had made the same thing, and this is always the thing, switch the parties. If Trump or Cruz or, God forbid, Hawley was the one making the same decision, every reporter would be out there, including Jim Acosta, telling everyone to look at him because he's Jim Acosta, saying, well, that's not open. We want five days a week open so we can put our wage slaves back to work and not have them at home babysitting their kids. But let's see what U.S. News and World Report has to say about this. <clears throat> Biden's goal for school reopenings, no, I'm not going to sign into U.S. News, suddenly becomes more attainable. From Lauren Camera. 
President Joe Biden pledged to reopen the majority of elementary and middle schools for in-person learning in the first 100 days of his administration. Now, the White House has clarified that it considers a school open if it offers students in-person instruction at least one day a week, a much lower threshold than his initial pitch suggested. His goal is that he... Uh, his goal that he set, rather, is to have the majority of schools, so more than 50% open, by day 100 of his presidency, Jen Psaki said Tuesday during the Daily Press briefing. When asked about Biden's definition of reopening is, that means some teaching in classrooms, so at least one day a week. Hopefully it's more, and obviously it's not as much as safe in each school and local districts. You know, somebody on the Red Ned show came out and had the idea that uh, we go back and have Elaine dub over Jen Psaki's responses, the actual correct response. When the reporters ask Jen Psaki the question, she circles back. So, we will see what happens from that. But yeah, that, you know, oh, well, one day. Let's keep going from the blaze. Biden quietly scraps Trump's plan for U.S. schools to disclose agreements with China-backed Confucius Institutes. <clears throat> From Breck Dumas. The Biden administration has withdrawn a rule proposed by former President Donald Trump's White House shortly before he left office, which would have required American schools to disclose their agreements with Confucius Institutes, a Chinese-language program accused by U.S. officials of spreading communist propaganda fed from Beijing. The Daily Caller reported that the Trump administration submitted a proposed rule to the Department of Homeland Security on December 31st of 2020, titled Establishing Requirement for Student and Exchange Visitor Program Certified Schools to Disclose Agreements with Confucius Institutes and Classrooms. Okay, Confucius, they're the worst. We, we can't have that in our classroom. Okay, it's done. We're going to propose the rule. It's going to be gone. It's going to be done. And nobody's going to reverse this. Okay. <clears throat> Biden quietly withdraws Trump admin proposal to require U.S. schools to disclose their relationship with the Confucius Institutes, tweets out Chuck Ross, in the midst of while well, everybody else was paying attention to the impeachment. But the Biden administration rescinded the recently passed Trump policy on January 26th, less than a week after he took office, a spokesperson for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement confirmed to campus reform. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted Tuesday in reaction, It has been a year since the Chinese Communist Party led a pandemic spread around the world. Instead of holding them accountable for hiding the truth, the Biden admin is rewarding China by allowing their propaganda to infiltrate our college campuses. <clears throat> but Newsweek noted the same day that Trump administration's foreign mission, designation, and last-minute executive order on the CIA never actually banned the education programs altogether. Nor did they issue guidelines on what the programs can and can't teach. That is correct. He didn't ban them. He just wanted it to be out in the open. So you could see that it was going on with this, and you could choose whether or not to send your kids to this program. No, he didn't ban it. They're absolutely right on that. But, you know, spin, 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 spin to try and get the story to make the orange man into the evil man. Let's keep going. From Reuters. Senator Manchin urges Biden to reverse uh, opposition to Keystone XL Pipeline. This is from Reuters staff, no author given. The head of the U.S. Senate Energy Committee, Joe Manchin, on Tuesday urged President Biden to reverse his opposition to the Keystone XL Pipeline, saying the project provides union jobs and is safer than transporting the oil, 
via trucks and trains. Biden revoked the permit for the pipeline, which would transport 830,000 barrels per day of carbon-intensive heavy crude from Canada's Alberta to Nebraska. It was part of a flurry of Biden executive orders aimed at curbing climate change. Meanwhile, putting all the stuff in a truck that gives off emissions and making climate change worse. In a letter to fellow Democrat Biden, the West Virginia senator said that even without the pipeline, the oil would still find its way to the U.S. by rail and truck, and pointed to U.S. data showing those methods result in more spills than the pipelines. Pipelines continue to be the safest mode to transport our oil and natural gas resources, and they support thousands of high-paying American union jobs, Manchin said. Opponents of TC Energy Corps' pipeline projects say building such infrastructure would lock in decades of dependence on oil making it harder to transition to clean energy. Why don't you make clean energy better? So it's more competitive and cheaper. Then maybe people will try to get more clean energy. Manchin said he supports reasonable energy infrastructure development, including the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would take natural gas from Manchin State to Virginia. That project, led by Equitrans Midstream Group, is one of several pipelines that have been delayed by regulatory and legal fights with states and environmental groups. Fourteen attorneys general, led by Austin Knudsen of oil-producing Montana, also urged Biden in a separate letter to reverse his decision on the Keystone permit. Manchin's support for big pipelines underscores the difficulty that the Biden could ha have moving wide-ranging climate legislation through to Congress given Democrats only have the slimmest possible majority in the Senate. Well, we'll see what happens off of that. Maybe he'll reverse his decision. Maybe he'll do something for union workers for once in his miserable career. From Fox. Texas judge extends suspension of Biden deportation moratorium plan. From Brooke Singman and David Spunt. A federal judge in Texas extended the suspension of President Biden's 100-day moratorium on deportation through February 23rd. U.S. District Court Judge True Tipton in the Southern District of Texas extended his suspension of the White House's deportation moratorium for 14 days, which the judge says will give parties more time to provide more fulsome record to assist the court in adjudicating Texas's motion for a preliminary injunction. The judge also cites the irreparable harm that would accrue if, to Texas if an extension was not granted. The order did state, though, that the Biden administration argued that the 100-day pause on removals is necessary to allow them to take account important immigration, foreign policy, and humanitarian considerations. The court may ultimately be persuaded by the defendants' arguments, but any harm they might incur between now and then does not outweigh the potential for irreparable harm to Texas, Tipton wrote. So, and this is just a bit of a tit-for-tat here, and I'm not sure... Who actually would have jurisdiction on this? Uh, now, nationally, of course, the Biden administration would have the jurisdiction on this. And I've stated before that I'm okay with having the 100-day moratorium until everyone gets settled into their offices and we figure out that there's not some vigilante that's just going to do stupid shit and everybody's vetted and ready to go. Now, the moratorium doesn't extend to criminals. Well, technically every illegal immigrant is a criminal, but... The, the violent felons, the rapists, the murderers, or people who leave on their own volition or don't try to fight it for anything. There are a lot of exceptions to this, but, you know, the people who are over here that are trying to scrape out a living, 
possibly looking for a path to citizenship, they've got 100 days to get their shit together, while the department has 100 days to get its shit together. Which, give them a chance to get their shit together. Make them legal. So that they don't have to sit back and worry. But of course, the Biden administration has no interest in making more people legal. They want more people to be illegal so they can come out and have slave labor for their big corporate buddies. But regardless, that's my tip to the people who are waiting the 100 days. Who are awaiting the 100 days until the evictions start up again. Contact your uh, Department of State in your country, your home country. Get your documentation ready. Try and get yourself legal in that time. So the big corporations can't fucking abuse you. Try and get yourself legal at that time. You're here. Do what you can. You've been given this golden opportunity to try and make it right with the country that you're illegally in. To try and make things square. Don't waste it. <clears throat> Let's keep going. From the Daily Wire. More Americans killed by coronavirus in 20 days under Biden than died in Vietnam War. Media grilled Trump over the same milestone. From Ryan Saavedra. More Americans have died from the coronavirus pandemic in the first 20 days of the administration of the Democratic President Joe Biden than died in the Vietnam War. A grim milestone that the left-wing journalist pounced on to attack then-President Donald Trump when he hit the same mark at the end of April 2020. Yeah, even if it's going against Biden, I'm still going to need a citation on that because I don't believe your numbers. I do not. A coronavirus death tracker for the Biden administration that is updated daily by the Washington Free Beacon. 60,178 Americans have died from the coronavirus under Biden's watch. Oh, that's all Trump's fault, okay? Mismanagement and this and that and evil and orange. The number is more than 58,220 deaths that the U.S. suffered during the Vietnam War, which is calculated by adding 47,454 combat deaths the U.S. suffered combined with an additional 10,786 Americans who died in theater. As many as 100,000 people are projected to die of the coronavirus in the first month of President Biden's tenure, raising the U.S. death toll above half a million. Still need that citation. Still don't believe your numbers. Raising the U.S. death toll above half a million, according to a forecast by the CDC. U.S. News & World Report reported, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said Wednesday during a White House coronavirus response team briefing that the death toll from COVID-19 is forecast to reach between 479,000 to 514,000 people by February 20th, a month after Inauguration Day. I don't believe your numbers. I still don't believe your numbers. Still don't. I will hold the consistent stance on this. I need to see because hospitals are still getting extra money for every death they can attribute to COVID-19. They're still getting extra government money, and they love money. So no, forgive me if I don't believe your numbers. Any more than I believe the numbers under the Trump presidency when they were on a ticker under every time he spoke on CNN. I don't believe any of this. A lot of this is fueled by greed and money. So we'll see what happens with that. From Reuters, once again. And I caught this right before I went live, so I'm actually glad I looked at Twitter right before I hit the live button. Biden admin plans to continue to seek extradition of WikiLeaks Assange official. 
from Mark Hosenball. President Joe Biden's administration plans to continue to seek to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange from the UK to the US to face hacking conspiracy charges, the US Department, uh, Justice Department rather, said. Justice Department spokesman Mark Ramondi on Tuesday said the U.S. government will continue to challenge a British judge's ruling last month that Assange should not be extradited to the U.S. because of the risk that he would commit suicide. In a January 4th ruling, the judge, Vanessa Baratzer, said, I, will, I find that the mental condition of Mr. Assange is such that it would be oppressive to extradite him to the U.S. The British judge set Friday as a deadline for the U.S. to appeal her ruling forbidding Assange's extradition. Ramondi said the U.S. will challenge Baratzer's ruling. That's a hard one to keep reading back and forth. We continue to seek his extradition. WikiLeaks drew fury from the U.S. government after publishing thousands of pages of once-secret reports and documents generated by the American military and intelligence agencies detailing including rather detailed descriptions of CIA hacking capabilities. WikiLeaks also published emails hacked from Democrat Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and a key advisor, which Clinton and some of her supporters say was a factor in her election defeat to Republican Donald Trump. Well, there's too much secrecy in the government anyway, so let him be a whistleblower. I mean, Charmello was a hero, according to you guys. And Reality Winner was a hero according to you guys. And Chelsea Manning is a hero according to you guys. So why is it a whistleblower is a hero when they fit your political needs, but when they go against your political messiah, which unfortunately Hillary was to a lot of these people, then he's a villain. I don't understand. I don't understand the uh, inconsistency here. And... They should have fucking pardoned him. Trump should have pardoned Assange. All right, let's keep going. From the Hill. Man charged in Capitol Riot says he worked for the FBI, holds top secret security clearance. From Jordan Williams. A man who was charged in connection with the January 6th Capitol Riot claims he's worked for the FBI and holds top security clearance. Well, that changes the outlook of the entire capital insurrection. <clears throat> An attorney for Thomas Edward Caldwell, 66, made the revelation in a court filing on Monday, arguing for Caldwell's release from a detention pending trial. He has held a top security clearance since 1979, has undergone multiple special background investigations in support of his clearances, Caldwell's attorney wrote. Caldwell, a Navy vet, worked as a section chief for the FBI from 2009 to 2010. And he also ran a consulting firm that performed work for several U.S. government agencies, his attorney wrote. The Hill has reached out to the FBI for comment. Police arrested Caldwell, an alleged leader of the Oath Keepers, a far-right militia group, on January 19th. And he's currently facing four federal charges, including conspiracy to commit an offense and obstruction of an official proceeding at the Capitol. It's the first conspiracy charge filed in connection with the riot. He's a Fed. He's glowing. And this calls the whole thing. I don't know if it calls the whole thing into question for you. It calls the whole thing into question for me as to whether or not this is even legitimate. If this 
is real if this was, and I talked to my mom about this last night, if this was just a bunch of monkey see, monkey do as well, where one person came in and said, hey, look, we can get in here if we smash this here window. And then that person winds up being a federal agent with top, secure, uh, top secret uh, security clearance. This makes me just buy this whole Capitol riot story less and less. Now, yes, I know that people were in there storming the Capitol who were actual Trump supporters. Vincent James is probably fucked at this point. He probably is. Because he was down at the front line, beating on the door, trying to get in. But if he was led there by somebody who was from the FBI, then we have to come back and think about this whole thing once again. Let's keep going. Got just a few more here, then we'll do something I'm thankful for and head on out of here. From CBS Los Angeles, OC man tests positive for COVID-19 weeks after getting second vaccine dose. Yeah, still not getting it. From CBS LA staff. A Monday marked three weeks since a Lake Forest man received his second dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and one day since he got a positive COVID-19 test result. Yesterday, I got a call from the Orange County Health Department, Gary Michael said. They told me that, yes, I'm positive with coronavirus, and they went through my symptoms and the precautions of what I should do as far as quarantine. Michael was tested for the virus when he went to Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo on Saturday for an unrelated health issue. You might be surprised by this man's story, this patient's story. I'm not. And it's not the first one I've heard of, Dr. Terso Del Junco Jr., Chief Medical Officer of KPC Health, said. I think I've heard of six or seven independent cases over the last three weeks of individuals that have been vaccinated with different timelines that have tested positive, and I think we're going to continue to see that more and more. So what's the fucking point of getting it? Why? Why would I go and get this if it, it's not going to protect me from anything? Why are you so adamant about everybody getting it at this point if it's not going to protect me from anything? Why am I paying this kind of money to go and get something like this if it's not going to protect me from a goddamn thing? Answer me those questions, please. But of course they have no answer. It's just shut the fuck up and get in line. Normally I don't use the Washington Examiner because they are not green check verified, but this headline was just too funny not to share. From the Washington Examiner. New app allows users to block 800 New York Times journalists on Twitter to fight against disinformation. From Emma Colton. A new app hit the market that lets users block New York Times journalists from appearing on Twitter feeds in a bid to fight against disinformation. It's time to block. The Block the New York Times app's Twitter account tweeted on Monday. Twitter users have begun mass-blocking New York Times-linked accounts to control the flood of corporate disinformation online. Now a new app automates the process. The app allows users to block 800 corporate journalists associated with the New York Times. The tweet from the app's account links to a page set up to appear similar to the New York Times homepage, but instead mocks the outlet with host stories, including one titled, 10,000 typos a year, one man's quest to correct the record of the paper record. The links on the website then guides users to download the app. 
Long marketed as the paper of record, the New York Times company now faces an economic and reputational reckoning. The app's creators wrote, employees are revolting. Well, yeah, they pretty much are. They. Well, I'm not going to give a commentary on that, but you know where I'm going with that. Traffic is plummeting, colleagues are scathing, and readers are blocking. The New York Times, a former newspaper, has come under increased scrutiny in recent years for bias, which was inflamed by former President Donald Trump's repeated attacks of it being a fake paper and practicing bad journalism, okay? It's, it's the worst journalism. The failing New York Times, a former newspaper, okay? They're the worst. The New York Times did not immediately respond to the Washington Examiner's request for comment, and they're not going to. Just trust me on that. They're not going to. And, I mean, stuff like this, it's out there. It's happened before. I know that there, I find people that are blocked on Twitter threads that I've never, or that have me blocked, rather, that I've never interacted with in my life. Um, one of the Groiper chicks, Ashley Groipenberg, or whatever the hell her name is, has me blocked. I've never interacted with a woman, but she's got me blocked. And some of this is, they go down, then, you know, if you're following a certain account. And I think a lot of it surrounds with Freckle Liberty, too, because she gets in so many fights with so many people. They get the app, and anybody who's following Freckle Liberty is suddenly blocked as soon as they hit the app button. So, I mean, these things exist, but this is the first time it's been turned against the New York Times, a former newspaper. So, I thought that was entertaining. Uh, let's talk a bit about Arizona. Chairwoman Kelly Ward on Newsmax to discuss yesterday's AZ State Senate vote on the resolution to hold the Maricopa County Bor uh, BOS in contempt. The resolution failed when one Republican Senator, Boyer, defected and voted with Democrats. Let's listen. Ward is the chair of the Arizona Republican Party and is leading the effort for this audit. And we also welcome in our panelists of the day. We have Melanie Burkholder, California Assembly candidate and former Secret Service agent, and also Winsome Earl Sears, a U.S. Marine and former chair of Black Americans to reelect Trump. Great to see you ladies today. Let's go back to the subpoena, if you don't mind, uh, because there was yesterday a vote, and we'll bring everyone up to speed, to hold the Senate in contempt for failing to turn over documents. That failed. So, Kelly, what's the latest on this effort of yours to ensure election integrity and figure out what went wrong? Right. Well, we are never going to stop looking for uh, what happened in 2020. We are going to expose any irregularities, mistakes, or fraud that happened. Thank goodness we've got a lot of strong Republicans in the state Senate and in the state House as well who understand the role of the legislature is to investigate so that they can create election laws that don't ever allow anything like what happened in 2020 to happen again. Yesterday, we had a vote. One Republican defected. That Republican was actually censured by his legislative district last night unanimously. And so um, we're looking for different pathways to assure that the Board of Supervisors complies. Now, in open court, they have agreed again and again and again to comply, to comply with the complete subpoena, to give ballot the ballots, the ballot images, the machines, the whole kit and caboodle. But every time the court case ends, they renege, they back off, and they lie. It makes them look guilty.
So clearly, um, you know, there's some di division here, even within the GOP party in Arizona right now, as you mentioned, that one state senator um, deciding to vote the other way. But I want to ask you, Kelly, and just push back a little bit, because, you know, critics would argue saying that there have been several audits here. The case is closed. What do you say to that? I say that's a bunch of baloney. Um, in Biden language, a bunch of malarkey. Um, the <laughs> audits that have been done before have been... <clears throat> All right, so they're going back. They're trying to audit this after the fact at this point. That's, I mean, we all know what's going on with this here. Now, I defer back to what I say about Liz Cheney on the same thing. As far as holding the entire Senate in contempt for this, I don't think is a feasible way to do this. I don't think that uh, that she's uh, that Dr. Ward is right on this one at all. But it does appear that uh, Senator Boyer has been censured by his district for not representing his district as well. So that's the proper course of action. And if they want to look through another investigation, then that's on them to do so. So I'm interested to see if they do wind up getting an investigation into this and then seeing what they come up with. But they are, they are definitely trying. So we'll see what happens from that. Let's read from the New York Post. More entertainment for the end of your day here. Plastic surgeon offers to help remove Gorilla Glue from Tessica Brown's hair. From Lee Brown. The Louisiana woman who went viral for using Gorilla Glue as a hairspray may finally come unstuck with a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon reportedly offering to remove the sticky stuff for free. Tessica Brown, whose hair has been stuck solid for a month, has already tried medical help with a trip to the ER with the acetone treatment only making the situation worse and burning her scalp, she has claimed. Now a plastic surgeon, Dr. Michael Obeng, has told her that he can finally end her sticky situation using medical-grade glue remover in a procedure that could take three days, TMZ said. Brown, who has raised more than $13,000 in an online fundraiser, is set to fly to L.A. Wednesday, the outlet said. The procedure is estimated to cost $12,500, but Obeng has offered to do it for free, the report said. Well, yeah, he gets advertising for doing it for free, and now he gets to be talked about on the New York Post. <clears throat> Brown went viral when she revealed on TikTok how her hair had been stuck solid for a month after she used the extra strong super glue after running out of her usual hair product. Bad, bad, bad idea, she said in the original clip which has been seen more than 20 million times by Tuesday morning. I have no words. I have no words. I have nothing for this. I really don't. But, you know, I mean, if the doctor's going to do it for charity, that's that's good on him. And that is free advertising for him. I'll give him that. But I have no words. Why? Why would you use Gorilla Glue on your hair? I've used Gorilla Glue to glue boots back together. I, no, I can't. All right, from CNN. Give that a second to think. Aunt Jemima finally has a new name from Chauncey Elkhorn. 
Quaker Oats is releasing a new name and logo for its Aunt Jemima products, finally retiring the racist stereotype that has adorned its pancake mixes and syrups for decades. The name Aunt Jemima has long criticized as a racist caricature of a black woman stemming from slavery, will be replaced with the Pearl Milling Company name and logo on the former brand's new packaging, according to the parent company PepsiCo. We are starting a new day with Pearl Milling Company, a PepsiCo spokesperson said. A new day rooted in the brand's historic beginnings and its mission to create moments that matter at the breakfast table. PepsiCo attorneys purchased the brand name and logo trademarks for the Pearl Milling Company on February 1st. Trademark attorney Josh Gerben of Gerben Parrot PLLC in Washington, D.C. spotted the filing Monday morning. We've been looking for it ever since they made the announcement, Gerben told CNN Business on Tuesday. And there is, there's the new packaging, Pearl Milling Company. Pearl Milling Company Pancakes and Syrup. The new brand is scheduled to launch in June, one year after the company announced that the change on Jemima was one of several food brands, including Uncle Ben's, Cream of Wheat, and Mrs. uh, Butterworth's. To announce redesigns as protests against systemic racism erupted across the United States this past summer. Alright, for those of you who are new here, we talked about this when this first started getting talked about back in November. We talked about this because the actual Aunt Jemima was a woman who had been formerly a slave that's true. The, um, the picture that they put up of her. But she had launched herself off of slavery into what would be almost equated today with inflation as a millionaire. She got rich because she took what was given to her, opened up, I believe it was a restaurant, and lifted herself back up out of poverty and into success in one of the worst times to do so. So the woman who was actually pictured on there is a hero. But racism. I love how the picture says too, the same great taste as Aunt Jemima. So, there you go. Erase a successful black woman from history. Because racism. Alright, last one here, then we'll do something that I'm thankful for. And head on out of here. L.A. Times columnist compares Trumpites to Hezbollah for plowing her driveway. People don't sweep other people's walkways for nothing from Blaze TV staff. An op-ed in the L.A. Times titled, What Can You Do About the Trumpites Next Door? is causing quite a stir. In a column, the author columnist Virginia Heffernan, where have I heard that name before? I know that name. Complains after her Trump-supporting neighbors plowed the snow off her driveway without being asked and did a great job. In the face of this act of aggressive niceness, Heffernan asks, how much thanks do the neighbors deserve? Just when you think she's joking, Heffernan goes on to compare her Trump-supporting neighbors to Hezbollah, the Mafia, and of course, Nazi sympathizers. This is also kind of weird. Back in the city, people don't sweep other people's walkways for nothing, Heffernan wrote. Hezbollah, the Shiite Islamist political party in Lebanon, also gives away things for free, and then they also demand devotion to their brutal us-versus-them uh, us anti-Sunni cause. Some of the us are family, the favors say. The rest are infidels. 
She continued writing, what do you... What do we do about the Trumpites around us, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Honorable Venerable D. Twitch, who spoke eloquently this week about her terrifying experience during the insurrection? At the Capitol on January 6th, Americans are expected to forgive and forget before we're even stitched up our wounds or gotten our vaccines against the pandemic that the former president utterly failed to mitigate. My neighbors supported a man who showed a near-murderous contempt for the majority of Americans. They kept him in business with their support, but the plowing. On the radio program this week, Glenn Beck reacted to Heffernan's op-ed and offered some really helpful advice he said he'd recently received. If you're getting this upset at your friends and family, neighbors, just stop. Instead of only tolerating the other side, maybe try to understand them. You may find more common ground than you think. And no, we're not going to watch Glenn Beck's video because I can't stand Glenn Beck. I like the aggregation that he does with news stories on his website, but I can't stand Glenn Beck himself, so I don't want to listen to him. All right, and that is going to be it for the day for the news. And the last thing we do on Wednesday is something that I'm thankful for because we got to start off, uh, end the day with something good after reading all the stupidity here. So those of you who are watching back at home uh, on the audio platform, you're not going to be able to see this. And on the Instagram, you're actually not going to be able to see this either, just because of the angle of where my phone is sitting. But uh, those of the rest of you sitting here on the webcam, you see I have a picture. I suppose I probably have to adjust that down a little bit here of the Ghostbusters logo drawn by a seven-year-old. And I want to give some thanks to my seven-year-old nephew who drew that and sent it to me. So Obviously not going to give his real name, but uh, I got to say thanks, Pugsley, for putting that up, sending that out to me. My mom sent it to me. He drew it up at my mom's house, and she threw it in the mail and sent it down to me. So now it's hanging up in my office, and you guys get to see my nephew's artwork. My mom said if I do this, he's probably going to send me more stuff. So there might be more stuff up on the wall, too. So we'll see what happens from that. But uh, thank you for that, and thank you for my uh, sister for having the kids, because that took the pressure off of me, too. Now my parents can still have grandchildren, but uh, I can still wait and, well, we won't get into my personal life. But from that, we were going to head on out of here. And we will be back here tomorrow with more contemporary, probably more impeachment stuff, probably more stupidity, and probably more of the stuff they're trying to cram in while you're sitting and watching the impeachment. So look forward to that. Look forward to the headlines and see what we've got. Look forward to seeing you guys. And once again, as always, if you're just lurking, make sure you get that last-minute message in the chat. So we can get your name read at the end of the uh, week and give thanks to all you guys. I saw some new names in the chat today, so thank you guys for coming and hanging out. We will see you tomorrow for more Contemporary. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary.